0: The first word of that song is "fairest" in the superlative. There is only one person really in, in existence that that sort of language can be used of. It means that he's the highest. There is nobody incomparable. There is language in that song that makes it very clear this is not a song, not a poem that you would write for your significant other, your spouse, or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. Unlike some, some so-called Christian songs that are out there, "fairest Lord Jesus, praise and honor, adoration." John Adams once said, As much as I love, esteem, and admire the Greeks, I believe the Hebrews have done more to enlighten and civilize the world. Moses did more than all of their legislatures and philosophers. In light of that today, I'm going to preach on the Ten Commandments. Now, a thought occurred to me early on as I'm I'm thinking of this message that I wanted to preach on all Ten Commandments, and Lord willing, I will eventually But at 10 commandments with 10 minutes per point, that's 100 points plus 5 minutes for an intro, 5 minutes for a conclusion, that's 110 points. It's one thing to stretch the boundaries a little bit of the time frame of the academic schedule. They usually usually let us get away with that. It's another thing altogether to stomp all over the the academic schedule. I, I doubt that I would be able to get away with that. So today we are going to look at Three, uh, maybe if we're four, uh, maybe four of the Ten Commandments, and then Lord willing, maybe in the spring or summer school or something like that, I'll be able to look at the others. Turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Ten Commandments occur in both Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 15, and Exodus 21 through 17, with slight differences, no content differences, but some slight differences that do show you more or less a different theological angle that is helpful. I've been thinking about the role of the Ten Commandments and the role of the law in general for quite a while, and and Mr. Bosler and I have had some good conversations on this topic and uh, and just the role that the law played even in early Jewish Christianity. I miss Mr. Bosler when he's gone in the spring, by the way. I can have very fun conversations with him uh, that I can't have with too many other people. So I've been meditating on this topic for a while, and a funny thing happens. I I teach both hermeneutics and Hebrew history, and in in hermeneutics, I like to stress, as far as practical application, Acts 15, Galatians, and so forth, we are not under the law. There is a distinction between Christians and Jews. We are not under the law. We are under grace, and we do not keep the law. We are allowed to eat bacon. Amen. Everybody who had breakfast this morning, (laughs) we are allowed to do that, whereas the Jews were not. That's not because God was a legalist in the Old Testament, but not a legalist in the New Testament. No, it's just that we are different than Jews. We are not ethnic Jews. And I like to stress that in hermeneutics. The Holy Spirit is superior to the law. The law accomplished its task, but the Holy Spirit is superior. However, when I teach Hebrew history, I have to sort of take a different angle, because the Old Testament is overwhelmingly positive about the role of the law. You don't necessarily even have, you have hints of it, but you don't have the negative, the flat-out negative language that Paul uses. Not that Paul ever says the law is bad, to the contrary, but he talks about the law as a schoolmaster. We are incapable of keeping the law and so forth. So I have to change direction a little bit and focus on how the law is a good thing. God gave the law not because he was a mean legalist. God gave the law so that Israel would be a light to the Gentiles. God gave the law so that Israel would be a holy people. And and so it's important to have the right balance on this. On the one hand, this past summer I was out in the hills of Virginia visiting a friend way out in the middle of nowhere... And I spent quite a few hours in a coffee shop, way out in this small town, out in the middle of nowhere, Stewart, Virginia. I spent quite a few hours in a coffee shop arguing with, excuse me, dialoguing with a gentleman who believed that all Gentiles like us should keep the law. In other words, that whole part about not eating bacon, sorry, you all just sinned this morning. And it was a very... It was a very discouraging discussion overall. We went round and round on a couple things. A pastor friend of mine here in southern Wisconsin actually lost a deacon to the quote-unquote Hebrew roots movement, which basically says Gentiles should keep the law to be right with God. Not necessarily to be saved, but to to be right with God. Well, the Apostle Paul and and James and the Apostle Peter all had some things to say about that. The Apostle Paul uses extremely harsh language. And what the Hebrew roots movement has to do with Acts and Galatians and Colossians and Hebrews, they have to perform exegetical gymnastics that would make an Olympic gold medalist put to shame. Yet this does not mean we throw the baby out with the math water. Once again, to the other side of the coin. This does not mean we forget about the Torah. This does not mean we say, as one megachurch pastor has said, that Jesus came to save us from the Ten Commandments, which is a very stupid statement. Jesus did not come to save us from the Ten Commandments. Jesus came to embody the Ten Commandments. He came to fulfill the Ten Commandments. He came to teach us even more clearly how to obey the Ten Commandments. It all boils down to love God and love your neighbor. But it's not that God in the Old Testament was a legalist. Far from it. The Ten Commandments represent the character of God. Even that fourth commandment that we don't talk about as much, even that represents the character of God and has some relevance for today. The Ten Commandments are not legalistic. Now, before I get into the sermon, I want to emphasize two books, really, that have helped me. We just took a plagiarism exam, so uh, it's important that I mention the sources that were key to this. Um, Two books that I highly recommend. Mark Rooker, he was a professor at Southeastern. I actually graded for him for a semester, so I'm a little bit biased in this, but very conservative uh, professor, Old Testament professor. Mark Rooker, R-O-O-K-E-R, The Ten Commandments, Ethics for the 21st Century, is a very helpful book, very conservative. Uh, And then also David L. Baker, B-A-K-E-R, The Decalogue, Living uh, Living as the People of God. Both of these books, books were very helpful. All right, Deuteronomy. Chapter 5, we'll read verses 6, and I think think through 12. "'I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth.'" Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto the thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Baptist College of Ministry. Thank you for the leadership here. Thank you for the students here and their tender hearts. Thank you for the privilege of preaching here, Lord. Thank you that you show us your character all throughout the Old Testament. Thank you that we do not throughout the Old Testament, that we can keep its riches and mine it for its pearls of wisdom and and theology and and what it tells us about you. Help me today, Lord, to make sense. Help me to uh, be clear and help this to be a challenge to all the students here. And in Jesus' name, amen. Before we can approach these commandments, we have to focus first of all on the prologue, verse 6. The commandments are based on who God is and what he has accomplished. He identifies who he is and what he has done. There is, as we learn in Hebrew history, there is probably a deliberate patterning after the ancient Hittite suzerain vassal treaties, uh, deliberately so, so that it is a form that ancient culture would have been familiar with. Those all start with a prologue, the suzerain, the great king, the high king. What is he? Who is he? What right does he have to make these statements? Well, God says, number one, he uses a divine name there. It has to do with his existence. He is the all-existing one. Then it says what he has done. Why does he have a right to make these commandments? Because he saved them out of the life of bondage in Egypt, because he rescued them from the wicked Egyptians. In other words, God is worthy of worship and allegiance precisely because of who he is and what he has done. He caused you to come into existence, and if you're born again, he has freed you from bondage. That gives him the right. We are like the children of Israel freed from slavery. That gives God the right to tell us what to do. That gives God the right to tell you to go to India and be a vegetarian the rest of your life so you can be Hindus. That would horrify some of you, I know. God gives you, God gives, God has the right to tell you to stay in America and plant churches. God has the right to tell you who to marry. God has the right to tell you to fast for a day. God has the right to tell you to feast with your friends for a day. Why? Because he's God, because he exists, he is the creator, and he is also the savior. This is all where it starts. This is not a handbook of rules. (laughs) This is not an impersonal handbook. This is about a relationship. We are not simply given some random list of rules from an abstract concept that is out there. God is not an abstract principle. He is a person, he is a being, and he has a relationship with us. That is where it all starts. The first commandment then, in light of that, the first commandment deals with relationship. No other gods before me. Why? Because he is the Lord our God. No other gods before me. That phrase before me does not refer to priority, as if it's okay to have other gods as long as I'm first. Literally, it it means in front of me, at my face. The word face there occurs in the Hebrew. At my face, before my face, i.e., in my presence. No other gods in my presence. Well, where is God's presence? Everywhere, right? In other words, there, not be, there, not, there better not be any other gods anywhere, period, so long as you expect to have fellowship with me. It's hard for us to understand the significance of this in, in modern culture. We are America is, for the most part, free from paganism. Now, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, you don't walk into the car dealership in America and see an idol of Buddha, If you do, that might be a great opportunity for a bridge to the gospel. But generally speaking, it doesn't happen. I have yet to walk into a car dealership in America and see an idol of Mary. I have yet to walk into a 7-Eleven in America and see Shinto symbols, Shinto talismans because of an upcoming festival. That sort of thing happens in Japan all the time. Uh, One of the missionaries that my dad knows once made a video recording of a Buddhist priest doing a formal chanting blessing over a new car. It was hilarious. (laughs) Judaism, however, so we forget just how different this is. Judaism was, in fact, the first formal religious system to exclude all other gods by principle. Christianity and Judaism stand unique within the history of of religion until Islam. Christianity and Judaism stand unique not in who they worship per se, but rather in their exclusion of all other gods. And one of the best books, by the way, I I can't help myself, I'm a teacher, i got to mention books. One of the best books to read on this topic is Larry Hurtado, Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christians' Uniqueness in the Ancient Greco-Roman Empire. There is one exception. In Egypt, at one point, there was a pharaoh, shortly after the Exodus, which I think is kind of significant, there was a pharaoh who started destroying graven images and started forcing the exclusive worship of one god, the sun god. That is the only exception that I know of until Islam. In other words, the issue has never been, do you worship the one t- true God? Or rather, do you worship God, or are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? And if you, lived in, if you lived in an Asian country for a while, you would understand this a little bit better. This is something my dad had to fight against in Japan. It's not enough just to say, hey, you know, start praying to Jesus. Trust in Jesus to save you. Well, okay, I'll just add Jesus to all my other gods especially if all you emphasize is Jesus's death on the cross. Jesus died for you. Will you trust him for salvation? And don't mention the resurrection. Well, okay, you know what? My ancestors are dead and I pray to them for salvation too. Sure, I'll just add Jesus into the mix. That has never been the issue with Judaism or Christianity. The issue is, do you worship God alone at the exclusion of all others? Hold your spot here. Turn to 1 Kings 19.18. I think this speaks volumes in 1 Kings 19, 18. This is, of course, Elijah having his little whining session, just like us. James says Elijah was a man just like us. In 19, verse 18, God responds yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have bowed and worshiped me. Is that what he says? No, quite likely, pretty much everybody in Israel, or at least a whole bunch of people still worshiped God, the true God. He doesn't say all the knees that have bowed to me. What does he say? It's an exclusion clause. All the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which which hath not kissed him. Because you kissed the king in homage. Psalm 2 talks about that. The issue has never been, do you worship God? Are you trusting in Jesus? The issue is always, do you worship only God? Are you trusting only in Jesus? The key word here is exclusivity. Only God, only Jesus, not Jesus plus Mary, not Jesus plus Buddha, not Jesus plus my ancestors, not Jesus plus myself, not Jesus plus whatever I feel like. Not Jesus, but church is my backup plan in case Jesus can't save me, maybe my church attendants can. There is no backup plan. We have to echo the words of, of Peter when he speaks for the disciples and says, where else can we go? You have the words of life. There is no backup plan. This theme is magnified in one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Isaiah 45. Turn to to Isaiah 45, please. This passage, by the way, is quoted in Philippians 2 in reference to Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ is linked specifically to Yahweh, the divine name. Isaiah 45, verse 21, "'Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together, who hath declared this from ancient time, who hath told it from that time, have not I?' the Lord, and there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me, and here it is, here's the money quote from Philippians 2, I love this, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And then the Apostle Paul applies this to Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about application of this first commandment. On the one hand, I don't think anybody here is guilty of worshiping idols, okay? I, I think uh, if, if, your, if your dorm supervisor is walking through your room and founds, finds a little statue of Buddha, obviously that would be huge issues, but I don't think that's going to happen, right? I don't think anybody here has a statue of Buddha. If, if you do, please get rid of it right away, okay? And I don't think anybody here is trusting in their church membership or good works and so forth to salvation. And furthermore, both my dad and I cringe a little bit when we kind of use the word idolatry a little bit loosely. Now, covetousness is idolatry. The Apostle Paul talks about that. So there's a key link there. But sometimes, you know, we're we're like, well, I I went and I got a second bowl of ice cream and I realized that's idolatry. I'm an idolater. I'll repent. Okay, well, if you get a second bowl of ice cream, maybe there's an issue there. Maybe there's not. But it's probably not idolatry. The issue is probably more self-control, okay? Let me give a personal example, and this is an area I think I've improved on over the past couple years. But one of my weaknesses is if I've had a bad day, you know, all the students are getting on my case, and, and you know, some snooty journal just rejected my, my article that I wanted to publish, and, and, my, you know, and I stubbed my foot and, and all that, and I didn't get enough coffee, okay, what do I do? Well, I'll go to pick and save, and I'll see what potato chips are on. I'll, I'll buy a family bag of potato chips sometimes at half, you know, half price. Whatever's on sale, sometimes it's chocolate. But I'll get a family bag of potato chips, and I'll take it home, and I won't share it with my family if you get my drift. Okay. Well, that's my weakness. Now, is that an issue? Well, yes, it is. Okay. And in fact, I learned, I learned something interesting with Dr. Jim's preaching on just, on just wounds and medicating. I learned that that's actually my way of medicating sometimes. Going to pick and save, whatever's on sale, grab it, and then devour it that evening. Like, that is actually sometimes my way of medicating. And the Lord showed that to me. I think I'm improving, okay? Now, that is an issue, but I don't think it's idolatry per se. And I think for those of us that have actually lived in a pagan nation, we understand a bit more what idolatry is. So that is an issue of self-control, but I don't think it's idolatry per se. The Bible, by the way, has a lot to say about self-control. Sobriety is a key word that means self-control quite often. Uh, which obviously includes not getting drunk, but it's actually much more broad than that. It can also include not devouring an entire family bag of potato chips without sharing with your family. So there are two key words I really want to bring out in our application for this passage. Necessity and equality. And if you're doing any any notes or anything like that, please write those two words down. Necessity and equality. Necessity. And here's where Colossians 3.5 comes into play. Colossians 3.5, which interestingly states Covetousness, which is idolatry. So necessity is saying, I need this. It's elevating something to the level of God. Why? Because only God is truly necessary for me. Now, I realize we can use this term casually. Man, I really need something to eat right now. You know, after, after a rough session of, of fellowship basketball, man, I really need something to drink like that right now. Okay, that's fine. I mean, we use it casually, we don't really mean it. We don't really mean like, you know, I'll suffer eternal condemnation and my, for all eternity if I don't have something to drink. That's not how we use that term, I understand. It's more of an attitude. It's more the point where something in your life becomes so important that you are incapable of imagining yourself without it. That is necessity. In other words, it's one thing to like potato chips, and it's another, okay, there's nothing wrong with that. It's another thing altogether to have lack of self-control when it comes to potato chips like I suffer from sometimes, okay, that's certainly an issue. But it's even more of a greater issue when you say, I cannot live without potato chips, or chocolate, or coffee, okay? When you get to the point where you say, I cannot live with that. The minute potato chips becomes a necessity, the minute coffee becomes a necessity, the minute marrying someone in particular becomes a necessity, at that point, when you cling to potato chips or whatever and say, it's mine and I'm never letting go, at that point, something has intruded into your life that has exalted itself to the level of God. It has claimed the throne of necessity. It has exalted itself to equality with God. It has claimed lordship over your life and it has become a rival to the one thing in your life that is truly important, your relationship with Jesus Christ. The fact is God can and will take away many good things in your life, whether it be a house or possessions or relationships or a ministry opportunity or a spouse or a loved one. The sooner you surrender those things to God, to the sphere of his dominion, to his kingship, the sooner you surrender those things, the sooner you say, they are not necessary to my life, the more better prepared you will be for ministry. This is why Jesus, using some incredibly hyperbolic shock language, which he likes to do, this is why Jesus could even say in Luke 14, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Hate. Well, what's he mean by that? He's being hyperbolic. He's, being, he's using shock language, right? Just like when he says, cut off your hand, right? Pluck out your eye. Well, we don't practice that here at BCM, right? But he is making a point that we should obey. What's he saying? It's all in, relative, in relation to God. Nothing must be at the same, because you can't get any higher than to say, I need this. You can't have a higher level of importance than necessity. There's no such thing really as super necessity. It's either necessary or it's not. And God himself, Jesus Christ, must be that one necessary element in your life with no other rivals. By the way, even ministry can become an idol in that regard. Even ministry can be a necessity. I need this church building. I need these deacons to get on board and start treating me right. I need this position as youth pastor, right? So be aware of that. Second of all, equality. So necessity is the first thing we have to watch out. What in our life has become necessary to the level of God? And this goes just beyond, you know, devouring a bag of potato chips because you're feeling bad, though that has, that certainly is an issue. So necessity, but secondly, equality, by which I mean equal status. In verse 9, back in Deuteronomy, God declares that he is a jealous God. Quite often in scripture, God uses the metaphor of a husband and wife. So I want to take that analogy and run with it and just unpack it a little bit. Men, imagine that you've been married for a while. And imagine one day your wife says out of the blue, you know, honey, you're attractive and strong, but Tom Brady is also attractive and strong. How many of you men would have an issue with that? Now, is it the fact that she likes football that's the problem? No, okay. Is it the fact that she notices that Tom Brady can throw a football quite effectively, is that the problem? Not necessarily. Probably a lot of men here actually secretly hope to marry a girl that likes football. Good luck with that. It probably won't happen, but, (laughs) (laughs) and you're not going to admit that even if it is true, right? The problem is not that she notices Tom Brady per se, though that could be an issue in its own right. The problem is that she mentions Tom Brady in the same sentence as you. Tom Brady also. Well, why would she do that? Let's flip the analogy now. Ladies, you've been married for five years, and you go to a classical music concert with your husband. In the middle of the classical music concert, your husband turns to you and says, honey, you're very pretty, but that lady playing the bagpipes is also very pretty. (laughs) Pretend it's a Scottish classical music concert, okay? (laughs) Honey, that lady playing the bagpipes is also very pretty. Would that bother you, ladies? Well, it should. If it doesn't, it should, okay? Is the problem the fact that your husband has noticed that the lady playing the bagpipes is not quite as ugly as the bagpipes themselves? Is that the issue? (laughs) No, that's not the issue. The issue is he mentions her in the same sentence as you. He makes her equal to you, of equal status. It's not enough for your husband to think that you're beautiful. Your husband must think that you're so beautiful in such a way that nobody is even worth mentioning in the same sentence, with the possible exception, obviously, of your daughter, that nobody is even worth mentioning in the same sentence, least of all a total stranger. And if we're not careful, because I'm going to give a few specific illustrations, if we're not careful, well-meaning conservative Christians can actually be guilty of elevating something to the same status as God a couple specific examples. I was a teenager on furlough with my parents, and we were traveling. For some reason, of all the trips we made, this one made an impression in my mind. Um, We were traveling, and we met with an older couple who were acquaintances with my dad, I think. My memory, I could be wrong, but my memory tells me it was in Tennessee, and that the older man had something to do with the bus ministry, perhaps, when dad was at the church there at, uh, at Tennessee Temple, and so forth. So he was linked with the bus ministry. But anyways, We're having a conversation. I don't remember much of the conversation. All I remember is that somewhere in the middle of the fellowship, the man started into a multi-level marketing pitch. Now, let me just say, if you ever invite a friend over for fellowship and launch into a multi-level marketing pitch, you're probably not being very friendly, okay? Just, okay, That, that doesn't mean that all of that is bad if you work for whatever cosmetic company it is and that doesn't mean it's bad that doesn't mean you can have you can't have meetings geared towards that but if you invite someone for fellowship it better be fellowship not not multi-level marketing amen okay so anyways in the middle of the fellowship quote-unquote he launched into a multi-level marketing pitch and I don't even remember what company it was I don't care really but one thing he said that has stuck with me for decades at one point he looked at dad and said You know, this is just like putting your trust in Jesus. Now, I don't remember what my dad said. I think he was too stunned. He might not even remember this incident, but I do. But just think of the absurdity of that. Absolutely nothing, let alone a silly multi-level marketing company, can be on the level of putting your faith in Jesus. Why? Because nobody's like Jesus. Duh. So when we make statements like that, we are exalting something silly. I I won't say stupid because maybe some people here make their living out of multi-level marketing. Okay, so maybe that's a valid way to make your living. I don't know, it's not for me. But something as silly and earthy, not necessarily worldly, but certainly earthy as multi-level marketing to exalt to the level of faith in Jesus Christ, that is idolatry, whether we realize it or not. Now tread carefully here, but in politics, we can do the same thing. I'll give two examples, one from the left, one from the right. In 2007, December 2007, President Barack Obama was on stage with his wife and Oprah Winfrey. We all like Oprah Winfrey right now. (laughs) He was on stage with his wife and Oprah Winfrey at a political rally in Columbia, South Carolina. Oprah Winfrey, who definitely has a spiritual side to her, no one would ever accuse her of being an atheist, She definitely has a spiritual side. She got up and speaking on President Obama's behalf, she deliberately sprinkled Christian and New Testament rhetoric into her speech. She actually said, it's amazing grace that brought me here. And then in regards to how simply speaking the truth for a politician is not sufficient, she then said in regards to Barack Obama, we need politicians who know how to be the truth. Obviously, there, that's an allusion to Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there was other language, lest it not be as clear, there was other language that I'm not repeating here that was also sprinkled in uh, to her talking about President Obama. Well, that's blasphemy. To make a mere political figure on the level of Jesus Christ is blasphemy. But we can be guilty of the same thing. And I tread carefully here. To, To his credit, I don't believe President Trump has ever encouraged messianic rhetoric. In fact, um, I so, so I don't think President Trump can be blamed in the same way that President Obama can. However, we conservatives from our own end are not immune to that same temptation. I was driving north of here visiting a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine in Phillips, Wisconsin. I was on I-41 North, somewhere between Slinger and Fond du Lac. I don't remember the exact point. And I saw a sign, and I only had time to, as I'm passing it, I only saw the first few, sen- few, first few letters of the sentence. But it said, only God and Donald Trump. And then something else. I don't know what the sign, what else the sign said. Now, once again, I'm not blaming President Trump for this. To my knowledge, kudos to him, he has never encouraged that sort of messianic rhetoric that I know of. So I'm not blaming President Trump for this. But I'm certainly blaming the person who put up that sign, because to my knowledge, I cannot fathom any way that sentence could end without being blasphemy. Only God and President Trump can what? Can save America? oh, is God limited to using President Trump? Consider, if I, if I, made, the, if I made the sentence, only Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers have a chance of getting the MVP, only and, that expression grammatically implies equality or act, or at least some kind of inexorable link between the two where they cannot be separated. If I say only Pastor Swanson or Pastor Schultz can sign that pass, it implies a form of equality or at least some kind of equal role there. To use the expression only and to describe God with someone who is not God is inherently blasphemous, then, because it makes somebody equal with God or at least indispensable to God's work, then. Every idle word will be judged. Blasphemy is either exalting someone who is not God to the level of God or bringing down God to our level. Same thing can happen in ministry. The minute you think, I am essential to this ministry, that is blasphemy, because only God is essential. The minute I, as a professor, think, man, aren't they glad they had me? Yeah, they bet they couldn't replace me. Well, actually, PhDs are a dime a dozen. (laughs) In fact, there's so many PhDs, there's not enough PhDs for the market. And besides, they don't even need a PhD to teach here. All you need is a good heart and at least good knowledge about the topic you're teaching with a master's degree, presumably, and even then, not necessarily. And you can be a good teacher. So God could replace me fairly easily if he wanted to, and that's a sobering thought. You will never be the essential element in your ministry. You will never be the one where if they take it away, it all collapses. And if it does, if they take you away and the ministry does collapse, then that means it wasn't a very good ministry in the first place. What is it? In other words, we must be very clear, careful not, not to do that, not to make something an idol by, create, by making it equal with God, by making it necessary. And I'm grateful here that when I think of the leadership here, there are two, two key characteristics that I think of. One of them is compassion. I never doubt that the leadership here loves me. I never doubt, for example, that Pastor Swanson loves the young men here. Okay, now, you may contest that, but, <laughs> but I am convinced. As I watch Pastor Swanson interact with you all, I am convinced, for example, that Pastor Swanson loves you guys. Okay, the faculty, the staff, they love you guys. I know the faculty and staff love me. We love each other. That's one thing I'm convinced of. The other thing I'm convinced of is humility. I think there are enough strong personalities here that under the right circumstances, they might, be able of, they might be capable of creating a cult if they weren't born again, right? There's enough charisma here. Fortunately, it's never happened. Why? Because of humility. Because the leadership here is humble enough they keep that from happening. That the spirit keeps that, keeps that from happening. And I'm grateful for that. But that is not always the case. That has not always been the case within fundamentalism. And it has not always been the case among conservative Christianity. Too often an ego can become an idol. And so that's my challenge here. <laughs> that has taken up I have still two more commandments that I was going to <laughs> go over today, but that is just about taking up my time. So uh, I think the sequel will look at commandments two through four next time I get to preach. So let me just challenge you, once again, on those two things, I feel these are the areas where we create idols. Number one: necessity. I need this. Only God should be necessary. And it's hard to let go of some things, isn't it? I mean, even your schooling here at BCM, right? Is it necessary? Well, no. It's good, and please, don't don't get me wrong. I don't want everybody to now transfer to a different school, okay? Please pay my bills for me, okay? (laughs) So, and yet, and yet, even something like BCM is not necessary, right? Only God is necessary. Secondly, equality. Nothing can be in the same sentence with God in regards to what he can accomplish and who he is. May we never make anything necessary other than God, other than our relationship with Jesus Christ.